from New York City. This is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and it's the beginning of the school year, and I happen to be teaching my history of English class, which has me in a kind of old Englishy mood, and then some other things have me thinking about languages and complicatedness and whether some languages are more complicated than others. And so I thought I'd fuse those two things for this episode and give us an excuse to, I mean, and give us the opportunity to look at Old English a bit just because it's fun, but then to pull out the camera and learn some things about what it means for a language to be complicated and why some languages are more complicated than others. Of course, some people would argue that no language is less complicated than another one. Frankly, they're wrong, and we will see why. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Old English. What was it like? Well, when you're, for example, at this stage in the history of English class, you have a challenge as a teacher of such things because Old English essentially was not the language that I'm speaking. It was so different that really it's better called Anglo-Saxon. It was much more like German. And one of the ways it was a lot more like German, and one of the ways that it's almost forbiddingly unlike modern English, is that it got into more detail. It was more persnickety. It dotted more of the I's and crossed more of the T's. And one of the ways that I mean that, this is going to start us off, is that we have in modern English, I and that's you know, myself, and then two eyes, if you think about it, is what we means. But we can also mean three eyes. It can mean four eyes, you know, we all, I, we. In Old English, you had three things. You had I, you had we, which meant, say, we, three, four, or five, and then you had wit, and wit meant just we two. We linguists call that a duel, but you had I, wit, and we. So, a passage of ordinary Old English. We had bargained, being two boys. The way that would come out, if you're talking about we two, is wit that you have. So that's we had bargained, being two boys. Knicht wesende, knicht wesende. So, we had bargained, being two boys. Well, we hear the two. But an old English speaker would hear the two-ness in the word for we because it was wit instead of we. Now, it was consistent in that also you had a dual you, singular you, a bunch of yous. But then also specifically, if it's just you two, then you had yeet. It was very nice. And so, there you two with pride waited and explored. That yeet. So that's there, you too. That yeet. For lenche. That's with pride. For lenche. Isn't that a neat word? So that yeet. For lenche. Waited. Wada. Explored. Kunadon. So that's 
Old English and you had these pronouns that meant something very specific. To me, Old English is always tired and irritable, but they were actually very picky about things when it came to, for example, pronouns in general. Many more endings than we have to divide the world up more finely than we're used to. So, for example, you know, I have, and remember, this is something that we all kind of know from what we think of as ye old English. You have, I have, thou hast, and then he, she, it, hath. You had to do that throughout the language. Now, actually, this it's time for a song, of course. And, of course, we have to have some mock oldie English. And so listen to this little passage where this dear actress, she's so cute, you have to find this online. She's very cute. Her name was Maxine Doyle. And she says, you mustn't believe everything that you readeth in the papereth. Well, that is not proper old or middle English, but it is adorable. This is from Good Morning Eve. It's a 20-minute Vitaphone short of 1934, which actually is special for a reason I can't share with you, which is that it's in beautiful, resplendent technicolor in 1934, and it's very well preserved. And so you see all these 30s people running around before penicillin looking like it was last week. Anyway, this is Ye Old English and then a very cute little song sung by Maxine Doyle as a medieval. Yea, I know all about thine affair with Lancelot. When Sir Will Rogers was here, <laughs> he told me. Pay no attention to that, Rogers. He only knoweth what he readeth in the paper. In old King Arthur's reign, the girls were not what you'd call hot, but they got there just the same. You'd think each dashing swain in quote a male would surely fail, but he got there just the same. Each night they float on a moonlit boat while they talked of this and that. And when he toot on his little loot, you could hear her say, don't ever do that. They never were profane with these a thousand courtly vows, but they got there just the same. English was picky back in its day. And it seemed like it tried to maintain this business of dotting the I's and crossing the T's and having a specific way of indicating even subtle little semantic distinctions. And so, for example, the pronouns in Old English from our perspective were kind of odd. He was hey, okay. But she was not she. There was no she. She was hea. So he is hey, she is hea which seems kind of like it. And there were places where that collapsed and both he and she were hey. Now, a language can get along like that. A great many languages in this world do, but English had not been one of them. Germanic languages are not supposed to be that kind. And here, in many dialects of English, it's hey and hey, or even in others, hey and heya. And then they was here. Imagine that. Here, if it was go goys. <laughs> if it was boys, and if it was girls, then it was heya again. So heya is she and also they gals. So this is a, a messy little system of third person pronouns. Hey, heya, heya, and heya. Or, or better, hey, heya, yeah, heya. What kind of pronouns are those in the third person? It's not distinctive enough. Daffy Duck would have something to say about this, such as in Rabbit Seasoning in 1951. Let's run through that again. Okay. Would you like to shoot me now or wait till you get home? Shoot him now. Shoot him now. You keep out of this. He doesn't have to shoot you now. Ha! That's it. Hold it right there. Pronoun trouble. It's not he doesn't have to shoot you now. It's he doesn't have to shoot me now. 
Well, I say he does have to shoot me now. So shoot me now. So what do you do with a problem like a hair? Well, you know what you do? You grab some definite article. So, for example, another way that Old English was very picky was that it had gender. It had the goopy, stoopy gender that we English speakers hate when we try to learn any other European language. You know, the hat's a boy and the moon is a girl. And, you know, if you're learning German, you have to learn that young women are neuter, etc. Well, Old English was just as bad. You had masculine, feminine, and neuter. And if you wanted to say that or the, the word was kind of in between those two meanings, you had three flavors. It wasn't chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. It was the masculine, se, for the. Then the feminine for the was seya. See that kind of pattern? And then the neuter for the was that, which later became our that. So chocolate, vanilla, strawberry, masculine, feminine, neuter, se, seo, fat. Well, seya If you think about it, in the mind of an old English speaker, that meant not just that or the, but it meant girly that, the. So if you're having some she trouble, you don't really have a very clear word for it. One thing you might start doing is saying, well, that gal, you're going to take the say and that's what you're going to take to use to mean female pronoun. That seems to be what happened. And, you know, there are works written about this. Nobody is exactly sure where the word she came from. But according to the best reconstructions, what happened was that they yanked seo into it, kind of a way of saying that one, except it had feminineness imprinted on it. Seo became sheo because sounds are always changing, as I'm always hammering away at. Then sheo became show. And so you have show. Now, what seems to have happened is that speakers of those dialects where everything had collapsed just to hey and hey for both he and she also knew of speakers who had this new show pronoun and they kind of created a little car accident and they made shay. So show and hey come together and you get shay. As sounds change, shay becomes she. So that seems to be where she came from. It's as if the language is trying to keep up its complexity. You must have that distinction between he and she, even if a language doesn't necessarily need it. And one way that we know that that's the way it happened actually is that there was a dialect of Middle English still spoken in two counties of Ireland until the 1800s. Not modern English, Middle English preserved. So there's always this myth that there's somewhere in that Appalachians or something where Elizabethan English is still spoken. So you're going to walk into some little town and you're going to go to a a BP and you're going to go get some soda pop. And then somebody's going to come out talking like Titus Andronicus. Of course, that is not true. But in these counties of Ireland, Middle English really was still spoken until about 10 minutes ago. And their word for she in this this dialect called Yola, Yola was old in this dialect, and that shows you how different it was from standard English and that our word is old, their word was Yola. In Yola, the word for she was show. So it seems like the process was caught at a certain point in its evolution. In any case, English kept doing that. They was a problem. Remember, you have male, they is he, and then she, they is heya again. It's kind of messy. Well... Same thing seems to have happened. And so there was a definite pronoun slash demonstrative, and that meant thus, your plural thus. And that one was fa. And so if you've got that sitting there, and you've got this hea, hea mess in the regular language, you might start using those ones, which is what that would have meant. 
as your word for they. And so next thing you know, you have they and them and there. So it seemed like it was trying to keep things clean. And as I've told you, I've gone over these pronouns in a very early show, but I know that almost none of you have any reason to listen that far back. And these are useful lessons. The idea that you'll get in some books is that for some reason, old English speakers borrowed pronouns from the Scandinavians who had invaded them and made life uncomfortable for everybody on the island. And that's always been a little odd because languages don't borrow pronouns easily. You tend to take care of your own pronouns. If you need a new one, you build it from within the resources of the language. That story never quite made sense. These English speakers are using a pronoun from some other language, even if the Scandinavians themselves started using their they pronoun in their rendition of English. Why would native English speakers use it themselves? It wasn't the strangest thing, but you know, it's like sharing toothbrushes. You can, you know, and especially if it's maybe your child's Maybe if you're sleeping with somebody, you'll use their toothbrush. You know you're going to get through it, but you don't. You don't want to gums and stuff. You you want your own space on certain things. So do John Kander and Fred Ebb in a show like The Act. This is Liza Minnelli singing a song that I've always really liked called My Own Space, and I'm giving it to her because it's one of her signature songs. I frankly have always found her somewhat overwrought. I know there might be some people out there who won't like that that's my judgment. I prefer her mother, but still, her mother never got to this song because it wasn't written before she left us. And so this is Liza Minnelli singing My Own Space, which is just a nice song. And in the meantime, think about one, toothbrushes, and two, third-person plural pronouns in oldie, oldie England. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
The idea was that English seemed to want to keep things clean and detailed and persnickety and over-explicit, right? But then it didn't. And English started becoming the kind of language that we are now. So, for example, you takes over like some kind of virus. It's really the oddest thing. The way it's supposed to be is singular is thou. And then the plural is you. That's the way languages are supposed to work. Tu, vous, tu, vosotros. Or in German, du, as opposed to ihr. That's the way languages are supposed to work. You're supposed to have I, you, he, she, it, then we, y'all, and they. But no, in English, you jumped the rails and you started to be used for singular persons. That's not the way it's supposed to be. One way we know is that, remember a couple shows ago, we talked about how Frisian, that language spoken over across the sea from England in the Netherlands, that's the closest language to English. Well, Frisian looks like English in many ways, but in Frisian, what you have is du for second person singular. They still have their reflex of thou. And, you know, their word for they is hya. So they're still dealing with this stuff. But the you ends up taking over and it means that we're this strange language where we have the same word for second person singular and plural. Now, actually, you can see it happening on paper. We can't resuscitate anybody and ask, why did you do this? But it's clear that you came to be processed as a respectful way of referring to a single person by implying, for example, that they were two entire people, which connoted a certain distance. And you can see within the same letter, for example, people wrote letters in, say, 1624, a mother to a son, how she switches between the thou forms and the you forms according to to what she's saying. So for example, this is an actual letter from 1624. My good child, the Lord bless thee evermore in thy goings out and thy comings in. So that's that's intimate. She has, you know, wiped his butt. Then she says, I was very glad to hear by your first letter that you were so safely arrived at your wished port. So a letter is kind of formal. It's kind of distant. It's something else. It's outside of the context. And so now she's referring to him as you. And she's also referring to him out in the world being a respectable person. So Lord bless thee. But I was very glad to hear by your first letter that you were so safely arrived at your wished port. You know, the spelling in this is just delightful. And I'm leaving that out because I want her to sound like a normal person, but it's actually things like your first letter that you were so safely arrived. <laughs> it's cute, but that's not how she thought she was sounding. So at your wish port, but more glad to read thy loving promises. So when we're back to the loving and the diapers, etc., then it's the thou. So more glad to read thy loving promises, which I hope shall always redound to thy chiefliest good. I wish my mother had ever talked to me like that. I could wish that you would settle yourself to certain hours tasks every day you rise. So now she's scolding him a little bit. She wants him to brush his teeth. And medievals did brush their teeth. And so certainly in 1624, some of this would have had to do with things like toothbrushes. But I wish you would settle yourself to certain hours tasks every day you rise. This I thought good to put thee in mind of. Now she's being nice, patting him on his dirty hair, believing thou wilt do this for my sake, but more chiefly for thine own. 
that's how it went. So there was a time when you could balance between the two. I could have given you a Shakespeare example, but I enjoy this more. It, it reminds me of um, Familia. Remember Familia, that cereal? It seems to me that it's only given now to babies, the very elderly, and somebody who's got some sort of stomach trouble. It's actually still good. I am not a baby. I hope I'm not elderly. My stomach is fine. But I eat Familia because it tastes like roughly powerlessness in 1970 when there was never a cloudy day and I was five. Familia and this switching between thou and you. Or something else. We used to have a se habla espanol pronoun. We used to have a way of saying one speaks Spanish. You used mon for that. Not mon, but mon. We had mon. And mon was the way that you did that. A normal Germanic language has an impersonal pronoun. And therefore, so did we. So there's a little bit of advice. This is one of the lighter examples of Old English. A great shame if you don't want to be what you are. The way that was said in Old English was, Mittelskand. Great shame. Mittelskand. If man nul bern, that that is. So, if man nul bern, if you don't want to be, nul is not want. That's willy nilly, wanty naughty, nul. So, Mittelskand. A great shame. If man nul bern, that that is. If you don't want to be, that, that one is. So you have a mon, and gradually it just flakes away. First it gets shorter, it becomes m, and then after a while nobody's using it, and you gets yanked in to do that. You know, it's such a shame if you don't want to be what you are. Wouldn't it be better if we had a nice impersonal? Because if we did, then when the wonderful Mae Barnes sang this song on her 1958 album that I'm the only person in the world who has, then they rated the joint would be Man Rada, that joint. That's the last time I'm doing that voice on this episode. Anyway, this is the wonderful Mae Barnes. She is not Dinah Washington. She's Mae Barnes. I like her almost better. This is one of my favorite songs of hers. This is called They Rated the Joint. Frankly, I don't know who wrote it. Who cares? But it's her singing it. Yes, they raided the joint Took everybody down but me I was sitting in a corner Just as drunk as I could be They were drinking gin and whiskey Drinking mighty fast Could have got a drink But I couldn't find a glass They raided the joint Took everybody down but me I was sitting in a corner Just as juiced as I could be This continues today. This kind of quest for what you might call the economical in English, although sometimes it's a charming vagueness, with the new they. And it's exciting to me to see this new usage of they where you can say my girlfriend is in the hospital and they got a shampoo from the people who work there and then you're thinking of a bunch of people all getting shampoos and then you realize that the person means the girlfriend the one person at the hospital rose isn't feeling well and they decided to stay home that's the new they 
meaning that you can use they in the singular, even if you're referring to a specific person. So it used to be tell every student that they can hand in their paper whenever they want to. That's generic. But now it's specific. My girlfriend, Betty Ann, who I have been seeing for 17 years, is in the hospital and they wish to have a shampoo applied to their singular betianical head. That's the new they. But that means that we've got they in third person singular, they in third person plural, and then you up there sitting there in the singular where it doesn't belong, and you in the plural. So we only have our number distinction with I and we. What a fascinating pronominal system, but frankly, that's very rare in the world. I, we, you, you, they, 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 and they. I am aware, off the top of my head, of a single language that has that kind of grid. It's a language spoken on the island of New Guinea, and it is called Beric. And in Beric, you have I, we, and then you, you, and they, they. They don't make that difference. But in Beric, the pronouns happen to take it really light. But with everything else, you can barely believe it's a language. It's so complicated. It's one of my favorites in terms of just what can't help but seem weird from the perspective of English. When you call it conjugate a verb in Beric, you have to specify the time of day, and it isn't optional. It's something that you have to include whether you want to or not and all sorts of things. And you can just cram so much into one word. So, for example, Beric for gives three things to a man in the sunlight is kitobana. Just those four syllables. That means gives three big things to a man in the sunlight. If you want to say we'll give one large object to a woman in the dark, then it's gold beefy. This is about giving. The object is large. And it's about whether you're doing it to a man or a woman and what the meteorological conditions are like. Kitobana and gold beefy. And if you're wondering, well, what is the element that means to give? It's very complicated, but both of them have a b in them. That's that's one thing. Or this one I really like. Put a big thing down low nearby. Now, can you imagine a language where there's one word for that? But put a big thing down low nearby. Guarantena. Okay. Put a big thing up high way over there. Toson Swetna. And it's the same verb. This is the way verbs work in Beric, an unwritten language, and one that somebody tripping over their big mustache with three names and drinking tea in the heat would have said was a primitive language. Ah, these people are just barking and snarling. But no, this language is much more complicated than English. Guarantina, Toson Swetna. Put a big thing up high way over there. Like a Christmas decoration? So, for example, imagine if you were going to have, you know, I'm allowed, Christmas Night in Harlem. This is a song from the late 30s. And, you know, you can imagine what the lyric of this was like. And so I'm not going to play the lyric. But this is an arrangement, an instrumental arrangement of the song that was done only one time on the radio in 1938. The arrangements survive. And so the Bohunks actually in the 90s sat down and played this arrangement in modern sound. And it's truly genius. This arranger is Nathan Van Cleve. Musicians out there, go look him up online right now. He did great work. He always sounds just like this. He worked for a lot of Broadway shows. This is Christmas Night in Harlem. This is just the instrumental for the beginning. Listen to this silly little melody and what an arrangement can do. This is catchy. Listen to that.
Just listen to this one little bit, this one little bit, this little song, all that stuff going on with the instruments. Mike, please play this one little part once again. What a way to put a big thing up highway over there. It's sort of that's the musical equivalent of Beric. And yet English just gets lighter and lighter and lighter. And it's way back. For example, something you never think about. It used to be that it wasn't only a book and an elephant, but it was my book, mine elephant. My book, mine eye. So if it came before a vowel, then it was mine instead of my. Same thing in the second person singular. So thy book, thine eye. That's the way it was supposed to be. Another one of these complexities. You know that song, that shitty old song, Drink to Me With Only Thine Eyes. This is um, a Looney tune called I Love to Sing It that everybody seems to love. Here's the little owl, and he's singing his catchy little swing song on the radio, but his parents want him to only sing boring music. And when they pop into the studio, he starts singing Drink to Me With Only Thine Eyes. I love to sing about the moon and the June and the spring. I love to sing about a sky. Drink to me only with thine eyes, and I will pledge with mine. Stop! 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 Enough is too much! But we lost that, so no more thine eyes. You know, it's archaic. Now we would say thy eyes, or your eyes, or even ye and you. Technically, it wasn't you that was the second person plural. It was ye as a subject, you as an object. So not only did you take over in the singular and all of a sudden start walking around like it owned the place, but you was a parvenu already because it was the object form. You said, ye listen to me, I'm going to tell you something. So English just gets lighter and lighter and lighter. Why did English do this? English started out normal. English started out as Old English, which as languages go, was pretty darn shaggy messy. It was like Icelandic is today. But then stuff happened to English. On the island, first of all, English was sharing space with people speaking Celtic languages, basically early Welsh in a lot of the places. And so a lot of people learned English as a second language. That probably was the beginning of English getting a little easier. You can see it happening in the documents because adults don't learn languages as well as children. Don't we know it? Then you have Vikings coming. These Scandinavians are like another version, really, of the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes, and Frisians who came first. And so they come, and they marry English women, and they do their best to learn Old English, but they don't learn it well, and they impregnate the language with words from their own Old Norse, and they shave off a lot of the endings. The detail starts falling away because of those Vikings in particular. And then even more, when the standard English dialect formed, there was a lot of population movement. A lot of people were coming to southern England in order to get in on the kind of action that was part of why the standard dialect of English that ended up being chosen was down there. 
So you're around London, you're around Oxford, you're around Cambridge. A lot of people speaking very different kinds of English. When people come together in situations like that, they adjust to one another. And they often have a way of subconsciously filtering out the quirkier aspects of the way they talk, seeking understanding with people who might not understand that sort of thing. Next thing you know, you have a more streamlined way of speaking English yet again. Combine all of those things, and it means that the language I'm speaking right now, despite the fact that it certainly has its complexities, is really unusual. For example, you try to learn Russian, and it's like, Jesus Christ, do people really speak this? And our natural inclination is to think, I wonder why Russian is so complicated. You know, what is it? Is it something about the people? Is it something about you know, the Volga? Is it something about... Asking somebody in St. Petersburg in 1996 for an apricot and she gives you a frown and reaches behind her and gives you a cup of coffee. And then you say, no, an apricot. And she keeps pointing to the coffee and she won't give you one of those apricots. Is it because of that? That actually, that happened to me. I don't know what it was. I didn't know any Russian at the time, but I really wanted that fruit. I'm salivating now. Is it that? Well, no. It's not that Russian is complicated. It's that English is kind of ding-dong. Russian is normal. That's what languages are like. Ketobana, Golbifi, Guarantana, Tosun, Swetna. That is what languages do. Can you imagine if a barrack speaker just heard me <laughs> do that? But they did not. Russian is normal. English is the peculiar one. English is extremely cleaned up. English is extremely telegraphic, and that's something that happens when languages get learned by an awful lot of adults. And so Mandarin, for example, has its four tones. And from the perspective of English, because we're not tonal, that can seem so intimidating. But you know, as Chinese as go, Mandarin is the English. Mandarin has, over the centuries, been learned by many, many people as a second language. And however hard you think Mandarin is when you learn it, always remember that all the other Chineses are much harder in just about every way. And not only the Chineses, but other languages of that type in the area. If you ever meet a Hmong speaker, well, you should know that their language often has seven or eight, or depending on how you count it, nine tones. And of course, they speak it just like we speak English. They're not thinking about it as complicated, but that's the way it is. You, you want to hear it. You do want to hear it, or frankly, you're going to. This is an actual Hmong speaker. This is white Hmong. I frankly don't know why it's called that, but it's white. And this woman is speaking it, and we have one syllable, paw. Say paw in various tones, and it means different stuff. So for example, here, paw. that means like a ball. Ba. Pancreas. Ba. Thorn. Ba. Female. Ba. Throw. Ba. Paternal grandmother. Not maternal. I'll bet maternal grandmother is something like thew. Paternal grandmother. Ba. To see. Isn't that something? And of course, it's not just that one syllable. That is how the whole language works. That is what language is. Language is Russian. Language is Tosun Swetna. Language is pa 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 pa. That's language. English for all of its delights, whichever they are, is a truly streamlined thing. All of us who speak it are speaking a very unusual language in that regard. 
as languages go. By the way, you know, you wanted to hear those tones, and I'll bet you want to hear a little more about that Middle English that survived in Ireland. Well, you know what? You can't hear anything more about Yola, about the fourth and Bargy dialect, as it's called, that lived on in there like Elizabethan English did not live on in the United States. You can't hear anything more about it unless you get Slate Plus for just a nominal fee. You can hear me talk about more irrelevant things. You don't have to listen to me do any ads. And this is general. You get Slate Plus. You don't have to deal with Slate Podcast commercials. And it helps support not only my show, but that of all the other podcasts that are done by Slate. I dare you not to like this. Even those of you who don't like show music, I have seen this song get into the ear of somebody who worked at not liking show music just because she had stopped liking me. This is Louisiana Purchase. This is 1940. This is Irving Berlin. This is the original arrangement. It is not Van Cleave. Boy, does it sound like it. It's actually Robert Russell Bennett. But this is one of the catchiest songs in the world. This is Debbie Shapiro Gravite singing. I love this cut to pieces. Louisiana Purchase I'll tell you what it means It means I'd like to sell you New Orleans Come on, come on, and you all can go to town Way down in New Orleans Louisiana salesman With nothing in his jeans That's why I'd like to sell you New Orleans Come on, come on, and do all the things There are to do in New Orleans Where does that heat come from, that rhythmic beat come from, and that red meat come from New Orleans? Louisiana Purchase, I told you what it means, so won't you let me sell you New Orleans? Come on, come on, and you all can go to town way down in New Orleans. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. Ball. Like a ball. Ball. Pancreas. Ball. Thorn. Ball. Female. Ball. Throat. Ball. Paternal grandmother. Ball. C. I love those. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor. And I am John McWhorter. Where does that heat come from?